Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Dr. Kaylee has been involved in special education for over 30 years. Her experience has broadened scope, ranging from aiding in the development of one of the initial early intervention programs in Tennessee, to working in drug and alcohol rehab, the juvenile prison system, resource classrooms, post-secondary sheltered workshops, and consulting for homeschool groups who enrolled students with special needs. She also taught for five years in a lower elementary Montessori classroom. She has presented professional development workshops on topics in Montessori and special education, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Kaylee has also worked with state and local governments in special education policy and procedural alignment. Her current research focus is primarily on peer-assisted learning in inclusion classrooms and over-identification of minorities in special education. Last week, we talked with Dr. Kay Lee about the Montessori method and helping neurodivergent children navigate the school system. Today, you will hear part two of our conversation with Dr. Kay Lee, where we dive into a specific reading strategy that is helping kids read at grade level, as well as literacy strategies you can implement at home. We also dive into the differences in school systems across state lines and how that impacts our kids. We talk about issues with teacher compensation, equal access to resources, and other issues that are plaguing our education system today. As parents, it's important to be aware of the issues and know what we can do to help in our own little corner of the world. Dr. Kay Lee is here to help us figure all of this out today. You recently graduated with a PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you got your PhD in curriculum and instruction, specifically with an emphasis in literacy. Your dissertation specifically was on exploring the influence of peer-assisted learning strategies in increasing reading comprehension of grade level text in students with learning disabilities. As a former teacher, the part that jumped out to me was the peer assisted learning strategies. I was all over that. I I love that. I think (laughs) it can make the classroom so much more engaging and fun, both from the lens of the teacher and the student. And there are so many other skills that are wrapped up than just the actual curriculum that you're teaching when you do those types of strategies. I'd love for you to walk us through this a bit, though. What types of learning disabilities can be helped by peer-assisted learning strategies? Well, I found that peer-assisted learning strategies work for students who have struggles in the areas of comprehension with dyslexia, with students who have perhaps visual processing disorder or an auditory processing disorder because it provides an additional support and additional activities that can help those students cement that learning. With peer-assisted learning strategies, there's that overarching general peer-assisted learning strategies that can look like, you know, buddy reading, right? Or things like lab partners, you know, that's all peer-assisted learning. But in my dissertation, peer-assisted learning strategies is actually a curriculum by a husband and wife team out of Vanderbilt, Fuchs and Fuchs. 
And this peer-assisted learning strategy is originally specific to literacy because it talks about and has three different learning activities that you go through with text that helps support and cement that learning. Um, you also talked about what other benefits that peer benefit um, students with disabilities sometimes are you know, ostracized and don't feel like they fit in with their peers. Doing this helps form some friendships that may not have happened organically. So that, that was neat to see in my study. The one thing that's very different about the peer-assisted learning strategies by Fuchs and Fuchs is that as teachers, we're like, oh, well, let's just turn to our shoulder partner or let's talk to the person across mm -hmm. the table. And it's not very strategic or intentional. It's just, you know, what's pragmatic and what works right now. Fuchs and Fuchs did something I think is brilliant that teachers could take away from and they divided, you know, everybody takes the beginning of the year reading inventory, right? Whether it's standardized or teacher created, there's something. So what they did is took those scores and they divided them in half. And so say you have 30 kids in your class, they split it at, so there's 15 in each group. Well, the highest reader is paired with the middle highest reader and so on all the way down to the bottom. And what they found in their research as they were developing this program is it works well because of the way that the peers are partnered. It's not the highest reader got paired with the lowest reader and they're so far apart in their reading ability that the highest one gets frustrated and the lower one is frustrated, but the higher one is a little bit higher and, but not too much. And the one that's lower still can bring things to the partnership and become a leader because they take turns being the leader in that peer assisted partnership. So that was the thing that I loved as a teacher. And I wanted to research it more with grade level biology texts because it hadn't been done in that area before. Well, what were the results of the dissertation study? Because you specifically looked at students with learning disabilities. Right. So the students that I looked at, I had statistically significant success in their scores increasing to understand grade level biology text. That's one of the hardest texts aside from wow, American yes. history texts. So they did show in a 16 week time that their reading comprehension scores were statistically higher than they were at the beginning. That's some good news. Also, um, part of the dissertation study looked at their self-efficacy, how they viewed themselves as science learners. And, you know, we administered that test that was validated by other people and a reliable measure, and that increased statistically significantly as well. Is this specific PALS strategy, the peer assisted learning strategies, is that something that is being taught more frequently in teacher education programs? That's a really good question. I have not seen any data on that because it is a packaged program. I'm not sure mm. how many, you know, states are using it, but I do think that there are takeaways that 
the retail aspect and using the reading scores and the different activities could be used in a classroom without buying the package, so to speak, because we all know school budgets are contracting and, um, you know, uh, but they... No, that's fantastic. I definitely see in a classroom setting how beneficial that could be on both sides of, of the coin. I'd love to kind of shift a little bit into still talking about literacy, but how parents could help their children improve their literacy skills at home. Because I know a lot of moms that I talk to, this is of concern. This is something we talk about and worry over frequently. So do you have any tips (laughs) in that realm? (laughs) Yes, I, I, I do. The biggest tip is to read with your child and have your child read to you. Now, as moms, I know I was overwhelmed, had three littles all at once, but you can draw on your village, so to speak, to to help you. Reading aloud a book to everyone or several books or higher books. We read, even I read, even when my kids were little, books that they could never read on their own, right? But that they would enjoy. We read a lot of the classics like The Wizard of Oz, we read The Little Women, we read Anne of Green Gables. So we just kind of cycled through a lot of books from from the library and then my oldest would read to my youngest. Books on tape are great. I actually back in the day um, sent cassettes to my parents and books for them to record and send back to me. And then the kids could listen to grandma and grandpa read the book. So there's, there's a lot to do, but that exposure to language, written or spoken language, and the cadence of a book, that prosody is what that's called. That's so important. And the more exposure they get, to words, the better readers they're going to become. I was super impressed with my daughter, who's my granddaughter's mother. They read Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings out loud to her before she was born. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So they kind of took it up a notch, right? No doubt. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Exposing even your babies to that kind of language is is an amazing thing. Pointing out concepts of print. Kids know what McDonald's is. They can read McDonald's because they recognize the sign, right? Right. Those things are important to help them organize their world and to promote those literacy skills and, you know, following along. And with my two oldest who had dyslexia, have dyslexia, back in the day, I had a copy of the book from the school. I had to fight for it, but I got two textbooks for each kid for each class that they had. And I read and they followed along as I read out loud to them. Now we have wonderful things called immersive reader, you know, on on Google. But again, there's still nothing that can replace as much time as you can give reading to your child and having your child read to you. The other part is working on sight words. If you can't find anything else that your child needs help with right off the bat, 
you know, it's letter recognition and sight words. Because if your child can master all the sight words for the first five grades, you're going to have a good reader. Where kids tend to struggle is they're trying to sound out those sight words and they can't be sounded out because they it doesn't work in our language to to sound out sight words. Right. So those are those are the two biggest things that I think and then make it fun. Don't don't make it a chore. Because oh, that's so they're going to hate it and you're going to you're going to hate it. So, yeah. you know, make it fun. I was actually make just going fun. to say that if you find things that they really enjoy hearing or listening to, the type of of books I think that's where I fell into a rut is that I, I never really found books that spoke to me when I was a kid. People were reading like Nancy Drew and things like that. And I was like, I don't really want to read Nancy Drew, but my kids found great books that they loved with the fairies and the fantasy and the dragons and just everything that just took their imagination to another level. So yeah, definitely making it more fun. I loved all the suggestions that you made. I don't know if I'll be reading Lord of the Rings out loud to my kids, but I didn't read them to mine. It does so. sound fun. It does sound fun. I do read Harry Potter with the kids and, and everything. So we, we have fun doing some reading, but we've already discussed with you several times and we can tell that you have extensive experience in the education sector but what we haven't mentioned is that your experience extends across several states in the country. I, I think I read Tennessee, Alabama, Utah. Now you're in North Carolina. I, we also were talking about Hawaii. Yes. Well, the other thing that I grew up in Greece, I didn't grow up in the United States. Oh, gosh. So. <laughs> we need to have you so back. So there's that school. <laughs> school system too, which is very, very different. But so yes, and Arizona and New Hampshire and Kentucky and yeah, we've, oh my we've gosh. been a lot of places. But what is so wonderful about this is that you have talked to us mainly about a broader spectrum of the different educational systems, but let's dive into it a little bit deeper. Navigating the school system as parents and advocating for our children for that might have special needs or special learning requirements, looking at education and literacy across the country on a broader scale. So we just want to pick it apart a little bit. Guess what? Everyone has a spine and nervous system and can benefit from chiropractic care. Anytime there is stress on your nervous system, your body may not function properly. Many people are unaware that children can benefit from chiropractic care. They assume that seeing a chiropractor is just something you do when you're an adult dealing with a bad back, stiff joints, or poor posture. True story, that was me for the longest time. For example, as a newborn, you might struggle to latch or breastfeed. As a toddler, you might experience digestive issues that threaten proper nourishment. As a teen, poor posture, heavy backpacks, contact sports, and normal growing pains can lead to your child experiencing headaches, scoliosis, PMS, back pain, and ADD, ADHD. I definitely wish I had known about chiropractic care when I was a teen. Additionally, as a pregnant woman, you might have persistent lower back pain, which chiropractic care can be a huge help for. Believe it or not, these issues are all related to your nervous system and they can all improve with chiropractic care. 
Chiropractic care aims to improve the function of your spine and nervous system so that your body can function at its best. Don't wait for the pain. Contrary to popular belief, you don't have to be in pain to seek out chiropractic care. In fact, pain is typically the last symptom that is expressed when the spine isn't in proper alignment. Think of chiropractic care as a healthy lifestyle habit. The same way you brush your teeth to prevent cavities, you should go for regular chiropractic adjustments to promote better spine and nervous system health. I've never thought of it that way. Davis Family Chiropractic serves families in the Raleigh area. They want to help you discover the root cause of your problem, address it, and give your body the best tools it needs to heal. Davis Family Chiropractic focuses on prenatal and pediatric chiropractic care, and their doctors are both certified in the Webster technique, which can be helpful throughout pregnancy or simply as an intervention if a baby is breached. Prenatal chiropractic care helps to keep mom comfortable during pregnancy and helps to get your baby in the best possible position for birth. Davis Family Chiropractic sees kids of all ages, from birth through teenagers to make sure that your child is developing properly and adapting to life. Visit Davis Family Chiropractic at daviscaironc.com and on social media at daviscaironc. Improve your family's health before it becomes an issue. What similarities and differences have been most obvious to you across the state lines in regards to educational requirements, students, and support for both neurotypical and neurodivergent students. And we can add Greece in there too. I mean, let's just pile <laughs> it in there. What always surprised me was the differences in state requirements. Okay, this was before Common Core, okay? A lot of people did not like Common Core, but I will tell you why I did in a moment. With my two children with dyslexia, there were some states we lived in that recognized dyslexia as a condition that warranted an IEP or a 504. Other states did not. That mm. proves very tricky when you move and all of a sudden your child has services and then poof, they don't. So we ended up having to get a 504 for one of my children because I could get services if they were classified as ADHD, which they had, but we didn't address that really then in the other state because they could receive services for being dyslexic and we could manage the other on our own. So you have to know when you move states, which lots of us do, I just did for a job, what the state looks like and how you, your child can receive services. I also, one of my children who has dyslexia was also classified as gifted. Now, she could receive services for gifted in one state, but we moved to the next state and she changed grades and went to a high school and that high school offered nothing for gifted students. And my elementary one moved into junior high and she ended up skipping a grade because they were like, oh, we don't have gifted services, but she knows everything in this grade. So we're going to put her in the next grade. So, you know, mm. you, you just have to research and go to state websites and say, you know, what's offered or contact the school. It, it's, it's a mess to move. For neurotypical learners, in one state, they may teach a certain concept, say fractions, at this point in the school year. 
And in another state, they teach it at another point in the school year. I found that out when my child brought home their homework and they're like, I've never heard of this. What, what is this talking about? And it wasn't taught and we oh moved. Oh my gosh, how stressful. Right? So that's what I see. Now, the beauty, Common Core did give us a level playing field and made it to where different states were coming together and teaching to the same standards throughout the year. That was so powerful for my family because it allowed my youngest to have that stable conversation because she's lived, this is her fourth state and she's in eighth grade. Happens when mom's job takes her different places. That's the big overarching differences that I see in states. And there are several states that have their own standards and don't follow Common Core. So that provides a bit of a tricky conversation. I do see that also lots of states are different in how they compensate their teachers and what they view as passing and not passing scores for things. Mm. You know, education is changing. We've seen that since the pandemic and we're still trying to feel our way to what, what, what is this going to look like? What is education in and of itself going to look like in the 21st century, but more importantly now as we try to navigate post-COVID and we're not necessarily past COVID right. yet. Well, there you have it, parents. It's another responsibility that falls on your shoulders. You must do a ton of research before you change states <laughs> to know what the standards are. <laughs> well, or districts even. I mean, you know, you, you, you have to be an informed consumer in, in, this, in this space that we live in for your, your child's well-being, for your well-being. And it's a lot of work. So, Well, you've told us a bit of similarities and differences. But can you talk a little bit now about what tools, support, routines, assessments, and state mandates that you've observed across the state lines that have best set our children up for success? There are a lot of tools out there that parents can access through school districts now, thanks to COVID. There's a lot of websites that parents can use to help catch their child up. There's several here in North Carolina. iReady is one of those that's accessible. And then there's several math programs. I was very impressed that my granddaughter, she was like, oh, I have to get on, even though it was winter break, I have to get on and, and do my program. Spend so many minutes, mommy, start the timer. If you're unsure about those tools, you know, reach out to your child's teacher and say, what tools are available for me to help support my child in their learning this year? Even if they may have gone over it at back to school night or in the hundreds of papers you get the first week of school, it's okay to ask those questions again. Just stay connected, you know, join the PTA, volunteer in your child's classroom if you have the time or if you have parents or grandparents that can can step in that role for you. Attend a school board meeting, You'll look at the agenda and see if there's a certain policy that speaks to you that you want to see changed for your child and other children's benefits. The thing to remember that 
I've told parents in very heated IEP meetings that everybody really, their best interest is in supporting children. Now we may go about that differently and we may have differences of opinion, but that's the bottom line that we need to keep coming back to is how to best support the child in their education. Keeping that in the back of our minds that supporting children is everyone's main concern. It doesn't always feel that way. I have to admit. I mean, absolutely. We just went through in North Carolina, our midterm elections where we were reinstating people into the school boards and whatnot. And it was difficult to figure out as a parent who to support and what programs would benefit the children best in regard to that. What should we pay attention to? What should we toss? What should we focus on that will most benefit our our children when it comes to advocating for change in the educational system? One of the things you had talked about is supporting teachers and to support teachers. I think teacher appreciation needs to be in there. I always was astonished that teacher appreciation week seems to end at elementary school. Um, aside from the PTA throwing a couple candy bars in your box and saying thank you. Keep in mind, I was just looking at some statistics that most teachers, this was on a nationwide study, spend around $2,000 out of their own pockets for things for their classroom each year. Oh my gosh. And they're not even paid very well, depending on where you're teaching, of course. Correct. Think about when you go to the store, Kleenex. Clorox wipes, whiteboard markers, how expensive those are. And most of the time, teachers are buying those supplies out of their own pockets. If you have the ability to donate to your child's school, make another school supply donation now as we're coming back and maybe towards the end of the year, if you can. Ask the teacher, what do you need? I always ask my child's teachers. I know I went through at least one black whiteboard marker a week as a teacher. That can add up. And there were schools where supply chain issues, we had to bring toilet paper or the kids didn't have it. Think about, (laughs) yeah. To go to the bathroom, you must use, bring your own toilet paper. You you get three squares. (laughs) And Noah used to get so mad at me for how much money I spent on supplies when I was a teacher. I mean, he's, yeah, you get it. It's unreal. Also supporting them emotionally. I regularly kept breakfast item in my room. I don't know if you did that, Chrissy, but I had a lot of kids who didn't get breakfast. Homeless shelters run out of food run out of breakfast. Kids miss the bus. They don't get here for breakfast. The cafeterias, I was shocked. I had students who were just starving right after lunch. These were junior high students and they were like, well, the portion sizes, they've cut them back. They're like, they're really small and we're still hungry after we've had lunch and we can only get one. And my heart's breaking for these kids because they're adolescents and they're growing and And how can you teach them anything when all they're thinking about is I'm starving? Also, you know, supporting teachers emotionally. Teachers are being called on to be social workers and counselors and advocates. Not that teachers aren't advocates anyway, 
but this is all piling on. And if you can just say kind words, support, that's helpful. And how to support your child in this space. We've talked a little bit about the district tools, you know, downloading, download the state standards for your child's grade. Buy workbooks. Oh, download. There's tons of free sites now that have worksheets. I saw as a teacher of junior high students who had elementary, upper elementary during COVID, these students did not know their math facts. That's another way parents can support, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. If they're going to use that the rest of their lives in various capacities, trying to play catch up with learning is, is hard. If you can, there are tutors. It could be, you know, your, your sister's child who's great at math. It's going to take all of us to get through this COVID learning loss. And we're going to see it for years to come. As you're talking to me and you're like, you can get a workbook. I love all the suggestions. Everything that you've said is amazing. Now it's just me as a mom taking the information and filtering through and saying to myself, what am I capable of putting on my shoulders? Mm -hmm. It's it's very difficult because you want the best for your children, but you also have to remember that you're supporting our children the best that we can, and we can't do everything. So would you say support teachers the best you can and help your children with a workbook? If you can do three, the three tiny things, have someone or read to your child or have them read to you, work on sight word flashcards and work on the math facts. If you do those three things as a parent, that's going to be the most helpful base that you can give your child. Oh, I love it. Thank you for helping me to take a breath for a minute because I'm like, wow, I'm going to add all of this onto what I'm doing. (laughs) So I appreciate (laughs) that so much. Yeah. And, and remember pull from your tribe. I couldn't do it as a single mother of three young kids by myself. I, and my parents live miles away. So I pulled neighbors and friends and others that, that I could to help me as best as I can. And, and do, you know, as mothers, we're doing our very best. They will get through it. They do grow up. I have three of them out in the world right now, and they're pretty successful in navigating it. So, you know, don't beat yourself up. If you can do one thing, do one thing. If your child is struggling the most in math, do math. If they're struggling the most in reading, do reading. Just do Mm. what you can do. And love them every day. (laughs) Absolutely. And make it fun. Make it fun. That's that's so important. So much good advice. Thank you so much. Thank you. I loved part two of our conversation today with Dr. Kaylee. I will admit some of today's topics got me fired up. Here are my top three takeaways from our talk today. One, literacy skills begin at home. Dr. Kaylee reinforced what I know so many parents already know. Reading with our children at home is crucial. Helping them with letter recognition, teaching them sight words, going over math facts. These are all simple ways we can connect with our child each day while ensuring they are as prepared as possible for school. 
Two, tap into your resources. Dr. K. Lee mentioned this in a variety of ways, from asking neighbors and friends for help to going to your child's teacher for advice and suggestions. It's important to remember you are not on an island rearing your child all alone. Parenting was never meant to be done alone. Tap into the resources around you. Create a collaborative team. Three. Okay. This is going to be a really hard one for me to limit myself on as I feel so passionately about it. Okay. This one's going to be a really hard one for me to limit myself on because I feel so passionately about it. Our teachers are immensely underpaid and underappreciated. They are tasked with what is an incredibly challenging job with thousands of unpredictable asks made of them on a daily basis. Pay attention to the ways you can advocate for change in your community when it comes to our education system and find ways to show your child's teacher all the ways you appreciate what they do. Teaching can often feel like a thankless job and most teachers pour their heart into their job and your child on a daily basis. Remember that a thank you and approaching them with kindness can go a long way. High five, friend. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you've enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.